millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello there, history friends. You are about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley, and of course, I will be your host for this episode and for the rest of pretty much everything we do here at When Diplomacy Fails. The Versailles Anniversary Project is a... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Really, well, really large project. Let's just state the obvious here. It's an eight-month-long extravaganza, and it really does bring you to the heart of what the Treaty of Versailles was all about. It puts you in the lives of those men that were there 100 years ago, and it challenges you not just to remember all of their names, but also to see if you could have done things differently. Speaking of trying to do things differently, what better way to see if you could have done a better job than to log in to the delegation game. The delegation game is a very special thing I've had planned for a while now, wherein you invent an avatar and you send him to the Paris Peace Conference, and I then work out ways to challenge these avatars that you've created every single week. And every single week we'll be holding different polls and everything else to see how we get on and to see what happens to these people that you've all sent there, how they interact with one another, what kind of accidents or incidents or great events challenge them or confront them and do they emerge on top or do they get drowned by the pressure and stresses of the whole event what do they achieve in the end and do they do a better job than those that were there a century ago the delegation game is a multi-layered thing 
And you can find out more about it by going to wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game or just clicking the link in the description of this episode below. But you should know that if you're interested in not just role-playing games or Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy booking type things, but also engaging more with the source material, this will be a great way to do that. It's not going to be completely made up from the top of my head. It will be historically based. We will be following a timeline here and throwing challenges that were thrown at the same people that were there 100 years ago. Except, of course, there'll be a very different cast of characters going than were there a century before. Originally, I had just planned to see what the kind of uptake would be for this, so I kept it rather unambitious. If I could get 20 people, I said, then that would be enough to go along with the delegation game and to have a weekly episode every single Friday detailing the exploits and adventures of these 20 avatars. I have since reached 20 delegates, which is great, great news because it means that you guys really care about this kind of thing and it means we can all be super nerdy together. So I'm really looking forward to all that happening. If you would like to take part, there is absolutely still time. We launched this property on the 18th of January, but so long as you want to take part, there's no real deadline. You can join whenever you want. You can join after it begins. You can join right this minute. Those 20 folks that have already joined up will have something of an advantage because they're the early birds, and I like to feel that that's a bit realistic, that the people who are there first would know more stuff and would be more clued into what's going on. However, if you were to join now, if you were to be number 21, 22, etc., that does not mean you would be at any significant disadvantage. It's going to be fun, it's going to be fair, it's going to be fascinating. So if I can keep it with the three Fs, I think we'll all be doing pretty darn well. Again, if you would like to find out more information, wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. For $6 a month, you too can go to Paris and do just like your ancestors did 100 years ago. Alrighty, guys, with all that out of the way, let's get down to Mr. Lloyd George. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 13. 
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the first profile episode of David Lloyd George in the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name, of course, is Zach Twomley, and you are a lovely history friend joining me here for, well, the third of our profile series. We are, of course, detailing the big three and giving you some insider perspectives, some background and some context to these people. In previous episodes, we spent a good deal of time working through the baggage which France and the United States would bring to the Paris Peace Conference, and here we begin a similar quest to unwrap the story of Britain. For Britain and its Prime Minister David Lloyd George, the Paris Peace Conference was a once-in-an-era opportunity, but it was also the ultimate test of the Prime Minister's abilities to tread the middle ground, to please the French and Americans, and to come out the other side with a deal that also benefited Britain. The British electorate, who returned Lloyd George's government with an overwhelming majority in mid-December 1918, would accept nothing less than this. Let's begin our journey into the character and context of Britain and its leader then, for our third and final profile couplet episodes of the Allied Powers. I will now take you to a weighted euphoric scene where the people of London learned that their great war had finally come to an end. Harold Nicholson was a senior foreign office clerk and a rising star in the administrative morass which contributed towards Britain's eventual victory in the Great War. He was also, conveniently for us, something of a tireless writer. His diary and account of the Paris Peace Conference, Peacemaking 1919, provides one of the most vivid human portrayals of that event. But it also furthers that school of thought which suggests, no matter what they did, that those who attended the Paris Peace Conference faced Mission impossible from the start. Taking our story back to before all that Parisian adventuring though, Nicholson remembered the moment when the war ended. He was, as usual, sitting in his London office. It is with saddened regret that I look back today to that November morning when Mr Lloyd George announced the armistice from the steps of Downing Street. The scene to this moment is impressed indelibly upon my mind. I was working in the basement of the foreign office, in a green and violet dugout, which, but a few weeks before, had provided shelter against the air raids of the Germans. I was preparing for the eventual peace conference. Having worked for an hour, I found that I required a further map. I went upstairs, towards the tower where our map room was installed. On the way there, I called in at the office of the chief clerk to order some further tin boxes for my needs at the conference. I strolled to the window and looked down upon... Number 10 Downing Street. A group of people stood in the roadway and there were some half a dozen policemen. It was 10.55am. Suddenly the front door opened. Mr Lloyd George, his white hair fluttering in the wind, appeared upon the doorstep. He waved his arms outwards. I opened the window hurriedly. He was shouting the same sentence over and over again and I caught his words. He said, At 11am this morning, the war will be over. Harold Nicholson then continued with a dramatic account of the scenes which greeted the surrounded Prime Minister next. At this announcement, the crowd surged towards him. Plump and smiling, he made dismissive gestures and retreated behind the great front door. People were running along Downing Street, and in a few minutes, the whole street was blocked. There was no cheering. The crowd overflowed dumbly into the horse guards parade. They surged around the wall of the Downing Street garden. From my point of vantage, I observed... Lloyd George emerged into that garden, nervous and enthusiastic. He went towards the garden door and then withdrew. 
Two secretaries who were with him urged on. He opened the door. He stepped out onto the parade. He waved his hands for a moment of gesticulation and then retreated. The crowd rushed towards him and patted him feverishly on the back. My most vivid impression of Mr. Lloyd George derives from that moment. A man retreating from two urgent admirers who endeavour hysterically to pat him on the back. Ought he to have gone? Having gone, ought he to have retreated so boyishly? That scene was a symbol of much that was to come thereafter. Having regained his garden enclosure, Mr. Lloyd George laughed heartily with the two secretaries that had accompanied him. It was a moving scene. So the Germans had signed after all. I returned to my basement. When I again emerged, the whole of London had gone mad. It was in this manner that I heard of the coming of peace. By the time David Lloyd George had finished his pandering and gone back inside, something incredible had already taken shape hundreds of miles away in that unassuming forest clearing north of Paris. The conflict which had been brought to an end had caused the direct and indirect deaths of over 900,000 British and Empire personnel. Some estimate the figure at over 1 million when disease is factored in, along with an additional 2.2 million wounded or missing to bring the total tally of casualties to over 3 million out of nearly 9 million men mobilised. These figures, like those of Britain's allies, were spread across varied fronts as British soldiers and their empire brethren found time to fight on the Western Front, in Asia, at Gallipoli, in Egypt, in the Salonican Front, in the Balkans and throughout the Middle East. The empire was forever changed by the experience, with the home islands losing some 700,000 men killed, and the colonies and dominions more than pulling their weight and adding to the grim total of 900,000. Some historians, such as Dan Snow, have sought to cut through the myths which accompanied the harrowing experience which the Great War provided for these 9 million individuals. It is worth noting, for example, that you were more likely to have been a casualty in the Crimean War than in the Great War. In addition, the First World War is the costliest world war which British personnel have ever been involved in, killing 2% of the population of Britain, but the Civil War of the 17th century was actually more devastating, with deaths double that figure. Dan Snow also adds that trench warfare was much safer than we may have been led to believe, with soldiers regularly being rotated out to preserve morale, and Britain's well-protected supply lines also doing wonders for the mood. These facts may well be true, but what was also true was that a hurricane of death and destruction never before seen had ripped through the British population. At home in the numerous towns where the Powell's battalions had been formed, widows and orphans had been left behind on a sometimes unimaginable scale. The most infamous day of the British Army at the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July 1916 tells this story at its most tragic and incomprehensible scope. The 1st and 2nd Bradford Pals, both part of the West Yorkshire Regiment, totalling approximately 2,000 men, suffered 1,000 770 casualties in the first hour of the offensive as they attacked the heavily fortified village of Serre. Of approximately 900 members of the 15th Service Battalion West Yorkshire Regiment, the Leeds Pals, who also served in the battle, around 750, 750 out of the 900, lost their lives. Similar devastation was experienced by the Accrington Pals, officially known as the 11th Service Battalion, East Lancashire Regiment, which sent 720 men into battle, of whom 584 were killed.
These astounding figures contribute to the tally of nearly 20,000 dead suffered by the British and Empire troops in the first day of the Somme on the 1st of July 1916, and that campaign's infamy was only increased by the catastrophic decision to continue with the offensive until by mid-November the British had lost some 450,000 casualties, with the French, sometimes forgotten from the Somme formula, also losing 200,000 men of their own, and all while fighting at Verdun. The Somme was, of course, only one campaign which the British army participated within. Every year brought a new campaign, and a new promise to end the war by breaking through the German lines. Every year brought rhetoric, pronouncements, and exclamations that the enemy was nearly beaten, that the blockade was crippling him, or that his morale was close to collapse. And still, every year bled into another year, until there seemed to be no blood left. The walking wounded compounded the misery which the absent had left behind. In some cases, the vacancy left by a death was just as terrible for a family as one left by a wounded man who was vacant in all but name and who had been traumatised beyond description by what he had seen or done. But to those men who at least were known to have perished, their bodies could be laid to rest or returned home. Several thousand families never learned the true fate of their loved ones, though. Many were transformed, like their peers who also faced intense shell and artillery fire, into red mist, blown to smithereens, rendering identification or recovery impossible, as human bone and blood was mixed with the congealing mud. Others were lost at sea, sent to the bottom by the fearsome U-boat campaigns, or they crashed in a cloud of fire and smoke while piloting a downed plane. The number of those whose bodies were not formally buried with their own headstone is in itself stunning. Some 526,816 men, according to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, had their deaths marked by a joint memorial to the dead. And of this number, a sobering 338,955 were known to have died, but were never buried at all, some being lost at sea, as we said, or on the battlefield, or left to rot where they fell. Small wonder that every year the death toll of the Great War continues to rise as new calculations are brought forward and new tallies debated. The sheer horror and scale which the mechanised total warfare that the Great War facilitated makes it impossible to ever provide an accurate number for the war dead, with new figures from previously untouched local sources coming to light year on year and projects pursued to record the deeds and deaths of those previously unknown. Some projects, like that sponsored by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, have made startling discoveries about men who perished alongside their peers but also disappeared. Their bodies vanished, their record invisible, until a reference in a parish or a request from a descendant refocused the search for answers. The work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is to be commended, but it only demonstrates how limited our appreciation for the total British casualties in the war has been. Recent work by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission actually places the total number of British and Empire dead at over 1.1 million. This is nearly 200,000 more than the accepted figure, and the number continues to rise, as does the number of men believed to have been suffering from afflictions like shell shock. Misreporting and misunderstanding such conditions have led some to conclude that as many as 20% of British and Empire soldiers may have been afflicted by this condition in some way. In a similar vein, the lack of understanding of the Spanish flu may have contributed to the underreporting of deaths from that disease in the final year of the war, and helps to explain how the death toll for that epidemic is estimated at between 20 to 50 million. 
We are not given a conclusive figure because we do not have one, and a final answer is impossible to reach, and perhaps always will be. These discrepancies in casualty lists and the lack of appreciation for unknown sources or unfamiliar conditions are significant aspects of Britain's wartime experience and should not be forgotten. To those leading the country between these years, though, and especially to those leading it after, the total tally of dead was arguably not as important as the overall impact which the war had on British society, politics and culture. The aftermath of the war placed great pressures upon British statesmen to justify the sacrifices, to find some significance in the loss by crafting a post-war Britain which all could be proud of, to vindicate the tragedies experienced by so many families that had lost a father, brother, uncle, cousin, friend, or more practically, the breadwinner. Tasked with accomplishing this feat, with giving voice to the anxious concerns of so many Britons, and with making the post-war world better than the one before, was the coalition government led by David Lloyd George. We were engaged in a mock battle over the hills, and the company to which I was attached was ordered to charge the enemy. Shouting at the top of our voices, we broke from cover and charged wildly over the hillside. I was racing along when, to my horror, I felt something snap. My braces had broken, and my trousers commenced to drop down. It was a most uncomfortable moment. I couldn't fall out of the charge, for I was the first in the row of men. As I ran, my trousers came lower and lower, till I was forced to hold them up with one hand and grip my rifle with the other. This was how David Lloyd George remembered one of his earliest participations in the militia of North Wales. As far as anecdotes go, it almost hilariously fails to anticipate how far the man's star would rise. Perhaps mercifully for his countrymen, though, Lloyd George retired early on from the battlefield and devoted his time and energies to a different type of battle instead, politics. In that realm of warfare, Lloyd George was rarely, if ever, caught with his pants down. The man who would one day dominate British politics, serving as both the first fluent Welsh-speaking Prime Minister and its last Liberal Prime Minister, was born to an unassuming family in Manchester in 1861. His father died when David was barely a year old, and his widowed Welsh mother returned home to Carnarvonshire shortly thereafter to be among her family. It was there that the influence of David's uncle would provide the paternal influence and career guidance which effectively defined him throughout his life. David recognised this in his own way, by adding Lloyd to his George surname, and remaining close to Richard Lloyd his entire life. Richard Lloyd died in 1917, having lived long enough to see his adopted son and political pupil become Prime Minister. David's childhood years shaped his political views, as well as his views on society and his attitude towards his fellow man. He would later speak of himself as a cottage-bred man, and a child of the people, but this was a political tactic rather than a biographical note. He lived, for sure, in close proximity to truly poor people, but it is also clear that his pedigree and family traditions, and even his upbringing, were authentically middle-class, and his own ideas, from the first awakening of ambition, noted one biographer, were those appropriate to the order which, of all others, offer the largest freedom and widest choice of self-development. This self-development was facilitated by his uncle, but it was permitted by his family's stable economic status and freedom from persecution or discrimination. 
In 19th century Wales, where landlords were Tories through and through, the views of their tenants were expected to reflect the views of the landlords. Harsh and unfair though it certainly was, Wales was a place full of contradictions and complexities, with the curious arrangement between tenant and landlord being only one element of this order. As the historian Thomas Jones noted, Richard Lloyd was the only liberal in his village who, openly at any rate, professed the liberal faith. His five-year-old nephew was the only child to wear the liberal colour, but wear it he did and proudly. There were humble families in his neighbourhood and in other Welsh counties, however, who possessed courage, tenants of cottage and farm, and the general liberal victory cost them dear. They were evicted from their homes for voting against their landlords, and with their belongings, they were turned out onto the roads. The effect of the intimate knowledge of such injustice and suffering upon a nature high-spirited, intolerant of opposition, and quick to take sides, can be imagined. Although he was better off than the majority of his neighbours, David Lloyd George's trajectory was different from that followed by other Prime Ministers before and after him. He was by no means an outsider, of the kind which Benjamin Disraeli represented, but he was distinct and separate from the public school spirit of many of those aristocratic dukes and lords who had formed governments in the past. Lloyd George, indeed, weighed his own energies against these overmighty dukes and landlords from an early stage. Before politics did beckon, though, Lloyd George invested his time and energies in a career in law. Once it was determined that he would be a solicitor, his uncle and mother invested their life savings in his tuition fees, and when no French teacher could be found to give him an adequate grasp of the language necessary to pass the entrance exam, his uncle stepped up and taught him the language, even though he didn't know the language himself. Both men learned as they went. Having completed his exams and made his way up into that profession, Richard Lloyd made a note on a warm July evening of 1882, when the 19-year-old Lloyd George first spoke. It was, granted, merely an exercise in leading the congregation in worship, but his uncle was impressed enough to write the following. A splendid morning. David speaking for the first time. Oh, my dear boy, he did speak so well. Never was anything more striking and profitable. May thy support be his, O Lord, to prolong his life and strength with thy blessing, to do good in reality to his age through Christ. Never did I feel so deeply. Though he later abandoned something of the passion of his faith, Lloyd George did not lose his talent for speaking, a talent which, as his uncle's excited scribblings make clear, he possessed from an early age. Furthering his talent in this regard, Lloyd George joined the debating society at Port Madog, a coastal Welsh town where he lived while studying. He also made some effort to address the perceived injustice of land reform, which was then shaking Ireland to its core. He wrote regularly to the North Wales Express, and one of his articles, an attack on the Conservative leader, Lord Salisbury, was published when Lloyd George was only 17 years old, in 1880. Having completed his law degree, Lloyd George made great progress through the later 1880s, making a name for himself within Wales as an articulate, considerate and skilled man of law. In 1888, he had the time to start a family of his own, marrying Margaret Owen, who brought with her lucrative farmland and solid Welsh roots. That same year, he also founded a Welsh newspaper with some like-minded peers, called Bugle of Freedom. All the while, the young David immersed himself in land reform, in debating Welsh independence, in effecting a transformation in local Welsh politics as the Local Government Act and the enlargement of the franchise between 1885-88 to brought about sweeping changes in representation. 
It was an exciting time to campaign for change, as the entirety of the United Kingdom appeared to be changing. David was determined to be a part of this change, to put Wales on the map, but also to achieve his ambitions. Law, it transpired, was not enough to satisfy him. He would have to see for himself whether politics was his calling by throwing himself onto the political front lines. Everyone who remembers him thinks of my father as a fiery Welshman, and in fact, he never did become anglicised. These were the words of David's son Earl, writing in 1961, and Earl continued, He never allowed you to forget what he was and where he came from. His speeches, which sometimes slipped into Welsh when he got carried away, were freely embellished with analogies about valleys and mountain summits, or woods and storms, all the elemental images which featured in the framework of his native country. In 1890, at the tender age of 27, David Lloyd George harnessed these idiosyncrasies to win by 18 votes a seat for the Carnarvonshire boroughs as a Liberal candidate. His platform had been broad and promised much. The mind of the young adult evidently sparkled with the vibrant energy of youth, ambition, and perhaps a small amount of naivety. Justice for Ireland was on his platform, which hinted at fixing the twin evils of home rule and land reform, and signified the young Lloyd George's sympathy for Irish politicians, which he was later forced to confront head-on. His views also had the effect of separating his candidacy from the Liberal Unionists, which had recently broken away from Gladstone's orbit, and his additional pledges also spoke to his convictions in other respects. He sought religious equality in Wales. Various measures of land reform, direct local veto on the granting of licences for the sale of intoxicants, a liberal extension on the principle of decentralisation, and the promotion of various other reforms, such as the abolition of plural voting, graduated taxation, a free breakfast table, that is, free from foreign duties on food, and the freeing of fisheries from irksome restrictions. Not all were convinced, though. One Welsh newspaper noted on the young Lloyd George thus, He appeared before the constituency under serious disadvantages. He was young and unproved. He had his fortune to make in every sense. He also, unhappily, brought himself to disfavour by some violent speeches and the extreme views he had advocated more than once. Others would look back later on David's arrival in Parliament in mid-April 1890 as a fortuitous occasion. For the next 55 years, he would hold his seat in this wild Welsh country, powering his political career and legitimising his claims to represent this mysterious Celtic world from which he came. As one historian noted, On the back benches appeared another man of destiny, black-haired, blue-eyed, Welsh-speaking, addicted to picture phrases, using English with great wit and fluency, but with the air of a foreign language, This young man seemed, then, an incarnation of the Celtic spirit. Between 1890-95, Lloyd George distinguished himself as a Welsh nationalist, a radical liberal at heart, but also someone who voted with his gut and conscience, rather than always defer to party lines. He still maintained his law practice, which had since been moved to London along with his growing family, and only for his energy and determination was the young David able to keep pace with it all. He was eager to prove himself in these debates, and, uniquely for statesmen of his era, he wrote a daily letter home to his brother and uncle in Carnarvonshire, where he remarked on what he had done or not done, and whether he believed he had been successful or not. Lloyd George's commentaries on his own actions, and his earnest solicitation of advice and opinions from his family at this early stage in his political career, surely single him out as something of an enigma. 
More likely though, David Lloyd George was simply a sponge and he was attempting to soak up as much knowledge and experience as he possibly could. Fortunately for his ambitions, Lloyd George took to politics like a duck to water, adopting what he had learned in law to overcome the denser legislative processes and come out the other side unscathed and with results. He experienced great feelings of personal excitement, especially when Gladstone returned to power with a small majority in 1892 and a home rule bill for Ireland was passed, only to be blocked by the House of Lords. This stonewalling by that aged house would later be cause for some friction in Lloyd George's career, and in time he would devote a great deal of time and energy to neutering the Lords' influence, thus changing the dynamic of British politics. But that, by 1895, seemed a far-off pipe dream, for in that year the Conservatives, in league with the Liberal Unionist Party, were swept to an overwhelming majority in the Commons. This was problematic for the financially strained Lloyd George, who had to find the money for a third campaign. While he held his seat, the loss was a bitter one considering how close he came during these early years to pushing his pet projects through the house. Now, in opposition for the foreseeable future, he would have to wait. Little did he know that this wait in opposition would last 10 years, and that by its end, Lloyd George's profile would be greater than he had ever imagined possible. In 1906, these swings and roundabouts of political cycles returned the Liberal Party to an overwhelming majority in Parliament, its final successful election of this kind. Already, the party was populated with several bright lights. Herbert Asquith, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, was 53, while Lloyd George, now President of the Board of Trade, was just 42 and now a Cabinet Minister for the first time. Further down the pecking order was a 31-year-old Winston Churchill, the Undersecretary for the Colonies, and better known for his recent jump from the Conservatives. Lloyd George's tenure as President of the Board of Trade need not detain us, and it didn't last very long in any case before he climbed the ladder again, taking Asquith's seat in the Chancellor of the Exchequer after the former became Prime Minister in 1908, taking over from Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. Now on the fast track to power, Lloyd George built upon the name he had made for himself by planning something close to his heart, the so-called People's Budget. In the background, Lloyd George found that war fever was beginning to affect his options. Liberal promises to reduce military spending in favour of their own social programmes were put on hold by a conservative pressure campaign demanding more dreadnoughts, and the consistent foreign crises in the Balkans and Morocco also did not help matters. On the 29th of April 1909, David Lloyd George performed his passion, the People's Budget, which he had been working on for nearly a year before a packed Parliament. The performance was, in many respects, a failure. The underlying themes and revolutionary content of the budget deserve to be outlined in brief here, if only to see how ahead of his time Lloyd George was. He was desperate and anxious to see the bill passed. It was to him everything that he had worked for and believed in since his childhood. The relatively straightforward idea that taxes would be placed on the land holdings of the rich and used to pay for the betterment of the rest of the country was dynamite, but it was dynamite considered too dangerous and hot to be touched just yet. Again, his speech was also haunted by the backdrop of a naval race with Germany that Britain was then engaged in, and while Lloyd George insisted he would never jeopardise British naval superiority, he also declared with some bravery that he would not waste money and building gigantic flotillas to encounter mythical armadas. 
the country would be improved and new social schemes such as health insurance were put forward for the first time. Following his tour of Europe at the turn of the century, Lloyd George had absorbed much from that experience and he sought to construct a kind of safety net on that European model. While by no means a welfare state, Lloyd George's schemes were radical and of course expensive. They were paid with a tax on incomes over £5,000, a tax on liquor and further taxes on land and building rights. Again, the minutiae of these reforms need not detain us. Lloyd George himself was not familiar with all their details. But all we do need to know is that after over 70 exhaustive days, Parliament finally passed his bill. The Commons, it seemed, were ready for change, but the Lords were not. The House of Lords defeated his budget by a large majority, and the curious constitution and parliamentary process of his country had once again frustrated Lloyd George's political ambitions. This time, though, he was a senior member of Cabinet, and if he could not work the system, then he decided that he would change it. Lloyd George went on the attack from late 1909 onwards, speaking to crowds of poor citizens and presenting the sinister image of the wealthy lords blocking the will of the hungry majority. This picture was not too far from reality, but the question was how Lloyd George planned to change this status quo. Until the power of the lords to veto legislation could be altered, his budget would never get through. To neuter the power of the lords, Lloyd George and Asquith devised a scheme whereby the lords would be expanded and filled with hundreds of their own men, who would vote not to pass the budget, but to remove the veto power of the lords once and for all. As it happened, this scheme was more of a threat, which signified the seriousness of the Liberals to pass their budget and to change the British constitution. Lloyd George had a surprising ally in King George V, who seemed very much willing to appoint new Liberal peers to the Lords if that House did not approve. This was the culmination of a conflict between the Liberals and the Conservatives, which had boiled for some time. Following two general elections in January and December 1910, though, the point had been made, the balance had been restored to British parliamentary politics, and the People's Budget had been passed. By 1911, Lord George could be confident that he helped to facilitate one of the greatest changes to Britain's political system since the expansion of the franchise in the 1860s. However, other clouds loomed on the horizon. The first was the troubling Irish situation, which would surely lead to civil war if Asquith's cabinet was not careful. With the Lord's veto gone, there was now nothing to prevent Home Rule passing through the Commons. Consequently, Irish politics began to acquire a more anxious parliamentary edge of its own, with Unionists and Nationalists declaring their intentions to achieve what was Ireland's by right. The second was a worsening international situation. The month after the Parliament Act of 1911 removed the Lords' right of veto, Italy attacked Libya and initiated a series of wars for Ottoman territory, which would not end until late 1913. All the while, the Anglo-German naval rivalry intensified, as did Franco-German competition and hostility over Morocco. Arms races escalated on the continent, talk of imminent conflict dominated, and David Lloyd George hoped that everything would calm down long enough for him to implement his far less exciting but far more worthwhile societal reforms. His hopes were to prove tragically misplaced. The clock approached 11pm on the evening of the 4th of August 1914, and within the historic cabinet room, sitting around a green table, punctuated by a few sickly light bulbs, the tension of the moment could be easily felt. David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, was sitting with his peers. 
names that would forever be associated with this weighted moment. Prime Minister Herbert Asquith sat, according to Lloyd George's memoirs, with darkened face and dropped jowl, while the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, held his head in his hands. These men and their aides were all silent, painfully aware of the step which would have to be taken. Anxiously, they awaited news. Had the Germans responded to the ultimatum? No reply had been received. Was the Navy ready? It had slipped into the mists of the North Sea a few days before. Was the population ready to fight a continental war? Surely they would be when they learned the bare facts. The hanging silence was broken suddenly, sharply, by the loud chime of Big Ben. To Lloyd George, as he later noted in his memoirs, the clock seemed to strike doom, 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 eleven times. The deadline had just expired. Germany had neglected to remove itself from Belgian territory, and the unthinkable was now the reality. Britain was at war with Germany. As Chancellor of the Exchequer, another question which haunted Lloyd George was, could Britain afford to fight this war? Amidst the optimistic pronouncements about the war being over by Christmas, it was difficult to imagine the road which the world's largest economy had just embarked upon. Having taken charge of British budgets since 1908, Lloyd George had facilitated a constitutional crisis and broken the back of the House of Lords, and all with the King's help. This had been done, Lloyd George emphatically believed, to change Britain for the better, and to institute reforms which were earnestly needed if the Welshman was to justify his position and his belief system of functional social liberalism. The years before had seen large amounts of monies spent on armaments, monies which Lloyd George would much rather have spent somewhere else. In the 1913-14 budget, he had blamed the expensive £195 million military budget on panics and nightmares, where Germany, rather than the old French enemy of yore, now featured heavily in the justifications for increasing armaments. The swollen Royal Navy, its redesigned dreadnoughts, and Churchill's insistence on replacing the coaling with oil had cost Lloyd George dearly and all for, in that man's mind, nothing much but additional ships which the country did not need. Britain was safe, Lloyd George believed, and he was far from alone in this view. One of his peers in government, Lord Lorburn, had insisted, Time will show that the Germans had no aggressive intentions. And that, Then foolish people will cease to talk of a war between us which will never take place. Another, Lord Haldane, insisted in December 1913 that our relations with Germany were twice as good as they were two years ago. Indeed, through the repairing of the Balkans after so many miniature wars there, the redistribution of Portuguese colonies, and the detente brought about with the tacit admission by Germany that the naval race had been lost, Anglo-German relations, by early 1914, did show several signs of promise. We had stated several times that had matters changed only slightly during the summer of 1914, everything could well have been different. In the New Year's Day edition of the Daily Chronicle, Lloyd George expressed his philosophy towards Germany in an interview, claiming that the Germans and Britons could not fight a war against one another, that relations were infinitely more friendly than they had been at any point, and that the organised insanity of increased armaments were costing Britain dearly for no material gain, that the exigencies of the military situation made it impossible for Germany to make war against the combined forces of the Entente. Furthermore, Lloyd George insisted, war would detract resources from the liberal mission of bettering the British state. 
Unless, Lloyd George said, liberalism seized the opportunity, it would be false to its noblest traditions, and those who had the conscience of liberalism in their charge would be written down for all time as having grossly betrayed their trust. As far as the Chancellor of the Exchequer was concerned, war was not in either Britain or Germany's interest, nor was it on either power's radar. Rather than war with Germany, it was Ireland that kept Lloyd George and his peers more than busy enough. The work which Lloyd George had done in breaking the veto power of the House of Lords meant that within the year, the Home Rule Bill for Ireland would be liable to come into effect. In response, Unionists in the North and South, fearful for their future, sought to maintain the legislative ties between the two islands, by force if necessary. Irish citizens on the other side of the national spectrum responded in kind, with illicit gun-running following as the two parties, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Irish Volunteers, armed themselves and prepared for what was looking very much like a civil war. Ireland easily eclipsed the monotony of yet another Balkan crisis, just as the Austrians handed Serbia the infamous ultimatum on the 23rd of July, Lloyd George was engaging in failing talks with both sides of the Irish crisis in a conference at Buckingham Palace. This Buckingham Palace conference broke up without result after three days, and only then were those involved fully able to take stock of what was happening in Europe. They found that not only had the continent suddenly become a much more tense place, but that their own population, from the businessman down to the dock worker, was against intervention, as Lloyd George remembered later in an interview. The Saturday after war had actually been declared on the continent, i.e. August the 1st, a poll of the electors of Great Britain would have shown 95% against embroiling this country in hostilities. Powerful city financiers, whom it was my duty to interview this Saturday, ended the conference with an earnest hope that Britain would keep out of it. The erroneous notion that the Great War was a capitalist war, fought for capitalist interests at the expense of the common good, is easily exposed by a quick examination, not of the anti-war sentiment of the population, which dominated in Britain before the invasion of Belgium, but also the panic which gripped the financiers and capitalists at the prospect of a dislocation of the world order, which kept them fat and happy. The status quo was profitable, and had been for some time. Lloyd George fell in line with the anti-war segment of Cabinet for several critical days, hanging on to every pacific promise or guarantee which the Germans made, and refusing to commit the country to a quarrel which was not in its interests. As late as the 3rd of August 1914, Lloyd George was arguing that the German guarantee to respect the integrity of French coasts should be respected. Lloyd George believed, as did many others, that Britain's agreements with France and Russia did not equate to alliances, and that she was free to interpret her responsibilities as she saw fit. This was the fundamental difference between the Entente and an alliance. This wrinkle in the straightforward conception about the pre-war political alignments was overcome thanks to German behaviour and an explosion in rhetoric which followed the invasion of Belgium by German forces. For a time, Lloyd George had even argued that German forces marching over a corner of Belgium could not be interpreted as a violation of the Treaty on Belgian Integrity, which so many powers in Europe had signed. The historian T.E. Redmond, writing of Lloyd George's behaviour in 1922, explained with some generosity what facilitated the change in Lloyd George's stance, thus swinging the cabinet in favour of war. 
48 hours contact with the streets of London had convinced him that powerful city financiers do not adequately represent the British race when honours at the stake. This is not to say crudely that he was against war until he thought war was popular. Such a way of stating the case would be entirely unjust. But it would be neither unjust nor untrue to say that Mr Lloyd George has that type of character which, for good or ill, catches enthusiasms as men catch fevers. He becomes infected by the mood of the people at the very moment when he thinks he is imbuing the people with his own. Indeed, the matter of honour for Lloyd George was absolute, and Lloyd George featured heavily in my book of that name because of the Chancellor's consistent invocation of national honour to justify and explain his actions. In a speech made at the Queen's Hall in London on the 10th of September, 1914, Lloyd George insisted that Britain could not have avoided war without national dishonour, and that national honour is a reality, and any nation that disregards it is doomed. Britain was, Lloyd George said, bounded by an honourable obligation to defend Belgium, which he presented as one of the most unoffending countries in Europe. Thankfully, for the sake of his rhetoric, Lloyd George didn't ask the Congolese how they felt about the Belgians. However, we should not discredit Lloyd George's pronouncements merely as propaganda or window dressing. Lloyd George did believe in what he was saying. He did believe that the war would cleanse Britain of her years of excess and sin and bring her closer to more valuable qualities. We can see, Lloyd George continued, the everlasting things that matter to a nation, the great peaks of honour we had forgotten, duty, patriotism, and clad in glittering white, the great pinnacle of sacrifice, pointing like a rugged finger to heaven. He distinguished himself from those peers that had originally disproved of the war by grasping the situation with both hands. In spite of his initial opposition, he did not resign, he did not attempt to limit British commitments, and he certainly did not limit British spending on the conflict. By the end of the war, Britain would have spent over $48 billion between the various fronts, the equivalent of roughly $446 billion in today's money. For an additional illustration, considering the fact that it was only in 2015 that Lloyd George's successor as Chancellor of the Exchequer was able to announce that Britain's final bill of debt from the war had been paid. The payment of this debt of £1.9 million, according to Chancellor George Osborne, was a significant event in Britain's history. He said in 2015 that, This is a moment for Britain to be proud of. We can at last pay off the debts Britain incurred to fight in the First World War. It is a sign of our physical credibility, and it's a good deal for this generation of taxpayers. It's also another fitting way to remember that extraordinary sacrifice of the past. Lloyd George and several of his peers at the Treasury Office learned as they went along. The Chancellor of the Exchequer was not afraid to invite his former rivals to help him brainstorm solutions to the massive challenges which lay ahead. Since the 3rd of August fell on a bank holiday Monday, Lloyd George helped to ease panic and prevent any run on the banks by extending that holiday to Thursday. During those days, Lloyd George met with all manner of department personnel as he attempted to get to grips with exactly what his role in producing finance for the war effort would look like. With an inbuilt conviction that the war was right, Lloyd George would never have felt comfortable diverting these billions of pounds away from schemes which he had been building towards in previous budgets. In his view, this money would ensure that Britain survived the challenge and that there was still a government to rule after the war was over. That said, he did not look particularly far into the future, since he and his colleagues were effectively flying by the seat of their pants, 
and knew little either of the full scope of the war or what this would mean for their positions in government. Britain financed its intervention in this great calamity through a combination of taxation, borrowing, inflation, and Lloyd George's annual budget estimates were replaced by periodic votes of credit as they were needed. Since it was impossible to arrive at precise estimates of future expenditure in a war of such unprecedented magnitude. It wasn't only the release of money into that bottomless pit of the war which Lloyd George facilitated, it was also the personal sacrifice of his son. Richard Lloyd George did not suffer the fate of many of David Lloyd George's peers. David's son would not be forced, like so many other aristocratic British statesmen, to confront the crippling grief and tragedy of loss while also continuing in their duties as a member of government. However, his son's presence on the Western Front certainly brought him great anxiety and made the crises and scandals of Asquith's wartime government personal as well as urgent. Any one of these crises Lloyd George appreciated could result in the death of his son, as so many countless other sons had certainly died. Frustrations with the government's shaky introduction to the war, not to mention the legions of casualties, shattered plans and apparently endless expenditures, exploded, but not literally, into the Shell Crisis in spring 1915. Through some opportunistic politicking, as well as sincere campaigning, Lloyd George was able to take advantage of this crisis in confidence within the government and reach the top of the greasy pole by December 1916. The intimate details of the Shell Crisis need not detain us too much, but a brief description of what happened and why should be used. In spring 1915, following yet another failed offensive, word began to filter through to the press that a lack of high-explosive shells had become an acute problem on the Western Front. This lack of shells, in fact, had been a problem since the war had begun. Neither Britain nor any of her contemporary participants in the war had imagined the sheer requirements for shells which the daily use of artillery would have on the shell reserves. Furthermore, the conventional wisdom put it that shrapnel shells were more effective against infantry, and thus comparatively fewer high-explosive shells had been produced. This disparity in resources and the pressing needs of the looming campaigns forced the British to go into production overdrive, but even this wasn't enough. Matters came to a head in late March 1915, when Sir John French, the British commander-in-chief, gave an interview with the Times and declared that, in his view, the failure of the British offensive at Neuve-Chapelle was down to the shortage of explosive shells and that more ammunition was needed to further offensives. The responsibility for these shortcomings lay at the feet of the Minister of War, Lord Kitchener, who then erred when he assured Prime Minister Asquith that Britain possessed enough shells after all. Asquith performed a speech claiming as much in late April 1915. But Lloyd George was not satisfied, and neither was another figure, with a supreme degree of indirect influence in British policy, the newspaper magnate Lord Northcliffe. Northcliffe owned the Times, the Daily Mail and other organs, and he blamed Lord Kitchener, the fabled star of that famous recruitment poster, for the death of his nephew. What a coincidence, then, that both Lloyd George and Lord Northcliffe happened to be firm friends. The uninspiring failure of the Second Battle of Artois in the first week of May only added to the idea among cabinet and among the public that something had gone very wrong where the supply of shells was concerned. If the government could not supply the boys on the front line with sufficient weaponry, then they were not doing their jobs properly. 
One war correspondent, supplied with information by the French who were also at the scene, returned to London and informed several higher-ups in the government, in addition to some leading conservatives, about the extent of the shortfall. This confirmed Lloyd George's belief that Kitchener wasn't doing enough to fix the issue. He teamed up with Northcliffe to begin a smear campaign of sorts against Kitchener, and in a Times article from mid-May, the aforementioned war correspondent penned an article in which he announced that We had not sufficient high explosives to lower the enemy's parapets to the ground. The want of an unlimited supply of high explosives was a fatal bar to our final success. Interestingly, the public perception of Kitchener as the hero of Khartoum, that colonial campaign of the previous century, made it difficult for the public now to believe that Kitchener had actually done anything wrong. This was one of the few occasions in his life where Lord Northcliffe proved unable to sway opinion, and, after seeing the reaction to the editorial and learning that circulation of Northcliffe's papers had actually dropped as a result, Lloyd George called his dog off. Northcliffe may have held back, but the impact of the pressure campaign was sufficient for Asquith to form a new coalition government and to create a new ministry, the Ministry of Munitions, with none other than David Lloyd George at its head. According to the historian J.A.R. Marriott, the new policy of this coalition government and the purpose of its Ministry of Munitions was to ensure that no private interest was to be permitted to obstruct the service or imperil the safety of the state. Trade union regulations must be suspended, employers' profits must be limited, skilled men must fight if not in the trenches and the factories, manpower must be economised by the dilution of labour and the employment of women, private factories must pass under the control of the state, and new national factories be set up. Results justified the new policy. The output was prodigious. The goals were at last delivered. Thus, David Lloyd George was front and centre when yet another fundamental change on the British state had taken place. Anyone who has seen propaganda posters shared on our Facebook page or Twitter knows that during the Second World War, absenteeism from work, and especially from production centres, were focused on heavily in the materials. This was a way of driving the point home to the workers, that the war depended upon their efforts during their working hours to produce what was needed. The Great War was no different, and although the Second World War often gets more attention by default, the issue of absenteeism was a common running thread throughout. While they managed to pass this new legislation and facilitate a better supply of shells, the debate was not over. The Clyde Workers' Committee attempted to implement some rights for workers in the tough, sometimes gruelling conditions, and organised several strikes which did affect genuine change, such as a controlling of rent hikes and a stabilisation of the wages paid. Unfortunately for the committee, though, its socialist elements made it their business to also criticise the war in their organ, the worker. When David Lloyd George travelled to Glasgow in December 1915, he was accosted by several members of its splinter group, who were arrested shortly thereafter, with their newspaper also being shut down. The political activism displayed by these socialist individuals and their anti-war activities provoked fierce impassioned debate from all sides of British society, but Lloyd George remained determined that nothing should impede the war effort. Heavy use was made of the 1914 Defence of the Realm Act throughout the war to justify the detaining of the more vocal or influential anti-war protesters, but Lloyd George was not deaf to genuine gripes. He was motivated above all to see the war brought to a successful conclusion, and the best way to do that was to achieve the military defeat of the Central Powers by maintaining harmony at home and peak organisation abroad. 
any doubts about Lloyd George's sincerity or about his care for the suffering of the men on the front should be weighed against the fact that his son Richard continued to risk his life for the cause. Writing during the 1960s, shortly after his father's death, Richard Lloyd George remembered the shell crisis and his father's impassioned reaction, saying, I remember sitting in my dugout, amidst the muck and desolation, listening to the shells and worrying, worrying endlessly about the outcome of the battles going on in Whitehall. Kitchener, what a wonderful poster he made. And later, Haig, brilliant to the top of his army boots, father said. Every sensible measure had to be fought for in opposition to the generals. There was the shell scandal. The shortage of shells made it impossible for us to counter the enemy fire for longer than 40 minutes each day. When father tried to induce Kitchener to give army contracts to more firms, he was told that only the traditional firms had the technical know-how to manufacture the weapons. They have developed their skill over some 200 years, was the proud claim. Good God, my father thundered. They made pikes, then. I have never seen father in more wrathful temper than when he recalled these incidents. Father said, Kitchener has fallen under the spell of his own poster image. How I cursed the day we made a paper idol of that man. He really believes that a war has nothing to do with the government. He thinks that the job of the government is to provide the war, and that's all. Lloyd George had presided over the building of Britain's welfare state, and he now turned his attention to staying true to his new portfolio as Minister for Munitions. New munitions factories were established throughout the country, with the sole purpose of turning out as many shells as possible. Railway companies were employed to tackle the Herculean task, and soon thousands of shells were rolling off the production lines, solving the shortage by the time the Somme was being planned. By rearranging the way Britain got its shells, and making the necessary changes no matter how painful, Lloyd George had demonstrated again that he had the political sense and actual knowledge of the situation to effect change. His leader, Herbert Asquith, on the other hand, was tainted by the crisis. With his unimpressive showing, Asquith had not helped his defence against those who believed that his war leadership was weak and uninspired, and that as Prime Minister, he lacked a policy for ending the war. David Lloyd George, by contrast, was the dynamic, flexible, successful candidate who could in fact get things done. Soon enough, Lloyd George would capitalise upon this impression all the way to the Premiership, where he emphatically believed that only he was capable of leading the country to victory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 